Hello, and welcome to the John 315 Podcast, the show where we break open the mysteries of the most popular and misunderstood Bible verses and put them back into context. I am your host. They call me Jonathan Bound in Snow Van Shank, and here is my co-host. They call him Jeremy Caffeine Withdrawal Swingle. Now, Jeremy, why do they call you Caffeine Withdrawal Swingle? Because my life is a mistake and I attempted to quit caffeine just about 10 days ago. (laughs) Now, Jeremy, what would possibly possess you to do something as crazy as going off caffeine? Well, actually, it wasn't that crazy. Uh, I've been having lots of trouble getting up in the morning for a while now. So I thought I'd just change something up and, and actually, so far, good results. So if you're out there and you're having trouble... You know, just getting out of bed in the morning. I know it sounds counterintuitive, but if you're having too much caffeine, it actually might be doing it. Um, At least it has been for me. So, yeah, I've been, like, getting up randomly. I don't even need to, like, snooze my alarm a hundred times. So, so far, so good. However, (laughs) uh, I was drinking a lot of caffeine before, and I didn't taper it off slowly like a lot of people do. Um, Ooh, just cold turkey? Well, I did did sort of reduce it a little bit, but, um, but... It was like half cold turkey. It was like, you know, lukewarm turkey. <laughs> Second day, <laughs> so, you didn't quite microwave yeah, it like enough. Like the, the kind that Jesus would spit out of his mouth. <laughs> okay, your joke is better. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the kind that Jesus would spit out of his mouth. We'll go with that. Um, but uh, so the, the annoying thing is, you know, there's like these headaches that come back and forth. So if I start like trailing off and, and you can't understand me in the middle of this episode, then you, you probably know why. Well, what about you, John? I, I think I can guess why... <laughs> your middle name is what it is yeah well so we've had a pretty mild winter down here in uh, philomath oregon for the longest time and then suddenly yesterday it just like snowed five inches in as many hours and uh all the roads are icy and because you know in oregon we're not prepared for this kind of thing <laughs> and so uh yeah i'm uh, i'm stuck at home today i know it's never that fun when you are the one snowed in but man i could sure use something beautiful outside right now it's just been gloomy <laughs> here in seattle yeah oh man i'm sorry it, it's gorgeous we uh um you know, part of the fun is that, uh, uh, you know, I was able to stay home with, uh, with the, the, the wife and the baby and, um, uh, we were able to get some great snow shots, uh, some like pictures of the baby in the snow. Uh, and, uh, <laughs> it was actually great. Um, this is the first time that, that Elisha has, uh, has seen snow before. And <laughs> it was great when, when he like got up and it was like, he was like first seeing the flakes falling out of the sky through like the French doors that are, are like front doors. <laughs> uh, Kaylee was telling me, she's like, yeah, he just like stared open mouthed out the door and just like reached out his hand. Like he was trying to grab the flakes out of the air. <laughs> and <laughs> it's just like absolutely mesmerized. Oh, that's perfect, man. Sounds real cute. going to have to see that little, little guy again. One of these days here. Yeah, yeah, it'll be it'll be good. We we we're hoping uh that we can see you all soon. Well, with all that snow though, I think you're going to have to grab your shovel, John. You know why? Why, Jeremy? Because if you don't shovel out all that snow, you're not going to be able to see the road, the Romans road. <laughs> you totally blindsided me with that. I uh, maybe it's the lack of sleep, but I totally didn't see that coming at all. <laughs> Cut the chit chat. Let's crack open the word. 
let's uh let's recap the Romans road so far John where are we at how many stops have we been at before right so we have made it through three stops in the Romans road so far and this is stop number four now just to recap here we know that the first stop on the Romans road is one that everybody sins stop number two tells us that because we have sinned we deserve death And stop three tells us that Christ died for our sins. We finally got to the good news last episode. And now we come to step number four. So, Jeremy, what is the verse that is the fourth step in the Romans road here? Yeah, it's a famous one. Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Mm, That's some good stuff right there. So how is this usually used in the context of the Romans road? Yeah, well, if if you think about the order, it makes sense, right? We just established that we all sin, we all deserve death, and therefore Christ died for our sins. But, you know, what happens next? Okay, so he just died for my sins and like nothing changes. Like what, is there anything I need to do to respond to such a thing? Well, and the answer, of course, is yes, the gospel does demand a response. And so this verse teaches rather clearly that we must believe and confess in Jesus. And we do that and we will be saved. Simple as that, right? Yeah, no, seems pretty straightforward. Well, yeah. And and yes, that's actually true. It is simple, as simple as that. <laughs> Again, I feel like we're not exactly destroying these verses in the Romans road so much as we are explaining their context further. Because, yeah, the way that this verse is used in the Romans road is pretty, pretty darn good, if you ask me. Yeah, I I mean, I think all of this is pretty straightforward uh, if you just kind of like look at what the verse is saying. Uh, But I I, I think there is maybe a potentially wrong emphasis that this verse um, can be used in sometimes. Uh, And and that is, you know, kind of this beginning part of like, you know, if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, you know, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you'll be saved. And, And if you like really lean super heavily onto that first one of, you know, you need to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. Um, it, 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 it can almost lead to this theology of like, ah, you just need to like, you know, say a sinner's prayer one time and then you're good. You got like your ticket punched, you're headed to heaven, you know, because you confessed with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you know, and, and I, I, I think that's probably a bit of a wrong emphasis, <laughs> particularly when we look at the rest of Romans where it talks so much about, you know, the way that we should live in response to this, this thing that God has done. It's, you know, very much in the in the eye of the, the New Testament authors that, you know, salvation isn't something that just like happens to you one day and then like, you know, boom, you're done. You know, this this is, you know, it's great. You got your ticket punched. Everything's fine. Um <clears throat> The New Testament has a lot to say about kind of how you should live in response to it. And so I think that this verse, you know, can sometimes be misapplied to give the idea that it's just this, you know, one time thing, you know, say this prayer and you're good. And, you know, even kind of this whole second half of the verse, uh, I, I think if you just like continue in the verse and you get to and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, uh, you, you kind of get the refutation of that, that this believing in your heart uh, you know, the tense of it kind of gives you this idea of it's something that continues on it that you need to like believe in, you know, keep believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. And so that it's not just this like one time thing. But I'm sure we'll get more into that as we uh, get into the rest of the episode here. Yeah, and I, I think you're on the right track, Jan- John, and not to mention that um, confessing that Jesus is Lord is a bit of a different thing than confessing that Jesus is Savior. Um, and that's something we'll get into a little bit more 
later down the line today. But uh, but I think that this verse does include in it not just what we might call like an altar call theology of salvation, where you just, you know, like you said, just pray the sinner's prayer. And, you know, that's the magic formula that makes you saved. Here is your incantation that you recite. Right here. Now you, you get your get out of hell free card. Um, and, uh, and now you can walk away and, and, you know, live your life like nothing ever changed. I think that's a little less common now. Um, but that used to be a pretty big problem in American evangelical preaching. Uh, and so, and, and it still is, I'm sure in some places I've seen this kind of preaching, this kind of preaching where it's like just trying to get somebody to verbally assent something. And then there's no effort made at like post conversion fellowship and discipleship. Um, or really any attempt made to just like even get the person to like realize they're a sinner. Now, of course, if you're doing the Romans road, then you do make them realize they're a sinner. But I've heard <laughs> preaching that's just like, yeah, it's a little hard to get through the Romans road without coming away with your own sinfulness. <laughs> Very true. <laughs> but I've heard, I've heard gospel presentations that are just like, believe and confess. I'm like, okay, but the people you're talking to have no conception of who the God of Israel is. And they don't know what sin is. They don't even know why it would be a big deal. Yeah, it's like, believe what? Confess what? Yeah, like, America is post-churched, you know? Like, there's lots of people who have some sort of, like, traditional or familial associations with the church, but the majority of people do not understand the Christian faith on even the most basic level. And so you cannot simply preach, you know, 10-9, apart from a broader context of, like, you know, sin and judgment and repentance and... uh and etc. And even just a general like view of who God is, <laughs> you know, um, you need you need all of that when you're when you're teaching people about the gospel. Sure, yeah, and I mean perhaps historically in the Western world, when there was a much greater understanding of Christian truth, just among your average person, uh, it would be sufficient to say something along the lines of confess and believe. But that would be because many other people had done the hard legwork of explaining what confessing and believing would mean. And, you know, so th th this is a, it would be a shorthand, an abbreviation of something that the audience would already have understood, not something that is in and of itself sufficient without, you know, further elucidation. So it seems like we've sort of hit at the possible misinterpretations of the verse. Um, but here's the thing. Okay, the context of this verse is ridiculous, everybody. Like, just flat-out ridiculous. Paul is, like, flying all over the Old Testament and just grabbing verses. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tell you, this took the longest to prepare of all the episodes so far because uh, we didn't exactly know going in what this passage even meant. <laughs> Usually we have, like, an idea beforehand. Uh, but this one was, like, boots-on-the-ground research. Um, so... If you are at home and you're not doing the dishes or, or whatever, and you're just sitting and listening, I would recommend you grab your Bible to follow along with us because this is going to get crazy pretty quick. Um, so, you know, we're going to do our best to, to explain it well. But this is a very tough passage, I think, uh, which is funny because this is such a famous verse, but it requires a lot of like delving into the text to really get what's going on in Romans 10, in my opinion, at least. So... Uh, so pay close attention to us. Uh, bear with us. This is all going somewhere. Uh, <laughs> and with that said, let's jump in. It's time for the meat. So where are we in the book of Romans so far? We've talked about this kind of over the last three episodes, but let's just do a very quick uh, uh, recap uh, just to, to prime our minds a little bit to get ready for jumping into chapter 10 here. 
So, you know, Book of Romans, it's kind of split up into a couple sections. Uh, and, you know, the first major chunk of the book, that's chapters one through eight, is Paul going on this very long discussion of, of theology and specifically the theology of how it is that we are saved and how we are justified before God. So in the first couple chapters, this is mostly chapters one through three, uh, Paul goes to great lengths to explain that everybody is sinful. And when he says everybody, he kind of specifically means both Jews and Gentiles. Um, but, you know, you can also make the application that like also, hu you know, humans in general as well. But specifically, both Jews are sinful and Gentiles are sinful as well. And so because of that, we stand condemned before God. But then, you know, because of uh, the, the work of Jesus Christ on the cross, we are, our sins have been paid for and we are then reconciled to God. And that's kind of the big punchline that we get uh, near the end of chapter three. And we, we talked about that a little bit in some of the previous episodes. Uh, you know, but then from there, Paul goes on for the next couple of chapters from maybe chapters four to about eight, where he goes through a series of potential objections that someone might raise to this uh, like good news that he has presented here. Uh, you know, these are objections like, well, hey, you know, if our sins have been paid for, why don't we just like go ahead and keep on sinning? Or, you know, if the law is the way that we know that we are sinful, if that's the thing that has condemned us, or specifically the Jews, doesn't that make the law like bad? You know, so how can you say that the law is good? Or, you know, what is the purpose of the law? And so Paul goes through um, explaining, uh, uh, you know, kind of the answers to a bunch of these different objections. And he kind of builds and builds and builds until in chapter eight, he's going through this whole discussion of like, you know, how should we live? And, you know, what does our life look like? And how do we wrestle through this state of like still being in the flesh and still being sinful, but then also redeemed by God? And kind of how does that all work out together? Uh, and he kind of ends with this, you know, big crescendo of like talking about the, you know, this, this great summary statement of what God has done for us. You know, this is the section of, uh, you know, for those he foreknew, he also predestined. And, you know, he goes through that whole section at the end there, um, kind of at the end of chapter eight, talking about how God has done all of these things for us of calling us, uh, uh, justifying us, glorifying us, and that this is something that, that, you know, he has done on our behalf. And so then when we get to chapter 9 here, Paul is actually going to discuss another potential objection that someone might raise to that. And that is specifically, well, you know, if Jesus is this, like, Jewish Messiah and there's, you know, this great good news, like, why is it that a bunch of Jews have rejected this message? Like, why is it that all of these Jews have rejected Jesus if it is the case that, you know, Jesus is the Messiah, that, you know, he's come to save, uh, you know, the world? And so... Uh, Paul is going to go through and talk about uh, uh, God's choice in like choosing to uh, like allow the, the the Jews to fall away for and he's going to bring give us the answer that the purpose is so that he could bring the Gentiles into the family of God as well. You know, we get this discussion of that there is this like one tree that God is making of both Jews and Gentiles, where Gentiles are being grafted into the tree. They're being brought into the family of God. And essentially, Paul's point is that, you know, this would not have been possible if the Jews had not fallen away first. And so, you know, that basically you allow the, the, the Jews to fall away so that then everybody is in the same camp of being sinful, so that everybody can be brought into the family of God, both Jew and Gentile, by the same mechanism, and that is Christ's redemptive work. Sounds like a good, uh, a good argument for Paul to be making. And, and that kind of goes to like the end of chapter 11. 
Um, and that's as far as the Romans road goes. So chapters 12 through 16, we'll, maybe we'll touch on that when we uh, do our finale on the Romans road. But um, so this section like Rome, in Romans 10 comes like right smack dab in the middle of this, uh, this section about, uh, about the Jews and the Gentiles and being one tree together with the Gentiles being branches that are grafted into the tree unnaturally, right? And so we got this weird tree of Jew and Gentile. And Paul is trying to explain this. How does this make sense in light of, in light of God and, uh, and his commitments to the Jews? But I find this really interesting, the, the first four verses of Romans 10, which are pretty close to our target verse today, uh, Paul has this to say. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them, that's the Jews, is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. So it seems that Paul is reasoning here, like you were saying, uh, John, that, that God rejected his own people uh, and then you know brought the Gentiles in. And he rejected them because they chose to substitute their own righteousness for the righteousness that was provided by God. And as we'll find out later in Romans 10, this righteousness that they substituted was the righteousness that comes by the law. And the righteousness they rejected, the one that they refused to submit to, is the righteousness that comes by faith. So that being said, though, how is Christ the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes? Paul is going to, you know, launch into this next section with our special verse, Romans 10, 9 in it, uh, to kind of explain this. Um, and verse 5 is going to start with the word for. <laughs> so that's how we know, right? The word for is very important, uh, that M Paul is building this argument based on what he had just said before in these first four verses. So let's, uh, let's go to verses 5 through 13. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your hearts who will ascend into heaven, that is, to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is, to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart, that is, the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. All right. So the first thing we got to observe, and this might not have been clear from the reading of it, which is why, which is why I suggested to bring your Bible out if you're in a place where you can do that. Don't bring your Bible out if you're driving while you're listening to this. <laughs> but we actually have a few Old Testament quotations here. And they're, they're a little tough to pick out. So first we have in this first verse, the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And that comes from Leviticus 18.5. Then we have the, the righteousness based on faith says, do not say in your heart. And then we have these separate phrases that are that Paul kind of puts these little parenthetical comments in between. So who will ascend into heaven? Who will descend into the abyss? 
and then the word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. So these ascend, descend, and the word is near you passages all come from Deuteronomy chapter 13, or sorry, chapter 30, verses 12 through 14. However, this do not say in your heart passage is actually ripped from a different context, and that comes from Deuteronomy chapter 9. Uh, so, and it's verse 4, Deuteronomy 9, 4. So it seems to me, just looking at this, that uh, Paul is starting out with mentioning this verse from Leviticus, this righteousness based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. And then he says, but the righteousness based on faith says, which leads to the question, what does Paul mean with that word, but? Is he saying that that the Leviticus verse is wrong, that that's like not a correct thing, that it's not true? Of course, that can't be the case because Paul adheres to the truthfulness of, of the Old Testament. I think the most reasonable way to understand it is that Paul is responding to a misinterpretation of Leviticus 18.5. Uh, and then, you know, and, and this is actually common practice. Uh, if you look at the, the writings of the early church and, and the New Testament, even you'll, you'll see people instead of like correcting a misunderstanding of a verse by like doing what we do in this podcast, where you go in and you look at the context and you figure out all the reasons why you're wrong and you destroy the misinterpretation with facts and logic that Paul prefers to like, just go to another passage <laughs> that he thinks is a little bit clearer. In this case, the Deuteronomy 30 passage and explain how that passage proves that this understanding of Leviticus can't be correct. So it's, it's interesting. We get this, like, it doesn't seem like Paul wants to really explain Leviticus 18.5. He just wants to prove it's wrong by explaining Deuteronomy 30. <laughs> yeah. And it actually reminds me a lot of the way that Jesus talks um, or the way that Jesus teaches specifically, I'm thinking like how he speaks in the Sermon on the Mount in the beginning of like the book of Matthew, where Jesus uses this, this form of, of explanation where he says, you know, you have heard it said, and then he offers some, you know, quotation from the Old Testament. And then he says, but I say to you, and then, you know, you know, he, he offers a clarification. And, and in the same way, when he says, but I say to you, he's not saying like, oh, you know, that first quotation from the Old Testament that I just gave you is wrong. And, you know, here's the truth of it. it, it, it that's not what he's saying is all he's he's more kind of making the point that, hey, you know, that old, you know, this first quotation that I gave you is misunderstood. And now I'm going to clarify it for you. And that that's the meaning of the word but that Jesus is using in that case. Yes, for sure. I think. Yeah. And the, the only difference between this passage and that is that is that here Paul is actually using a second scripture, whereas in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus just says, but I say to you, and then he launches off into his own commentary on it. Of course, Jesus is the word of God. So whatever he says, you know, automatically becomes scripture, <laughs> uh, you know, so he can do that. Um, but yeah, it is a similar teaching style. So let's look at this Leviticus 18.5 passage first before we get too far in the weeds um, about Deuteronomy. What is this misinterpretation that Paul is, is attempting to combat? Uh, basically, I mean, this it's founded in the middle of a bunch of purity rules in Leviticus, so the context does not help us too much. <laughs> or, I mean, it, it does, but we would have to spend a whole podcast episode on it because we haven't really talked about Leviticus on this show before. Um, but uh, but yeah, one important snippet from the context, though, is that God specifically contrasts his rules with the rules of the nations around Israel. So listen to chapter 18, verse 3. It says, You shall not do as they do in the land of Egypt where you lived, 
and you shall not do as they do in the land of Canaan, to which I am bringing you. You shall not walk in their statutes. So this is relevant to the context in Romans 10. In this verse, uh, Leviticus 18.5 says, You shall therefore keep my statutes and my rules. If a person does them, he shall live by them. I am the Lord. Paul's detractors would look at keeping my statutes and my rules in Leviticus 18.5, and to a significant extent, they would think of that as just don't be like Gentiles, right? Uh, and, you know, that's actually true to a point. That is kind of the point of the Leviticus 18 passage, but they're missing a lot. <laughs> you know, they're missing a lot to it, and they're they're going in a direction with it that is prejudiced against the Gentiles and, um, and w- thinks far too highly of their own righteousness. So Paul is going to demonstrate the imbalance of that interpretation by showing us Deuteronomy. Okay, sure, you know, sure, you guys, uh, if you keep the Lord's statutes, you shall live by them. You know, uh, that's that's true. But let's take a look at Deuteronomy 30 so that we can see why you're, you're going a wrong direction with this. But before we get to Deuteronomy 30, which is kind of the main chunk right here, like you said, Jeremy, there's actually a quick little quotation or an allusion to Deuteronomy chapter 9. And this is the, you know, but do not say in your heart who will, you know, and then on from there. So the do not say in your heart part is actually coming from Deuteronomy 9. Here, I'll I'll read it for you starting in verse 4. Deuteronomy 9, 4. Do not say in your heart after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you. It is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me into the possession of this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going to possess their land, but because of the wickedness of these nations the Lord your God is driving out before you and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your forf- to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know, therefore, that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Yeah, so I think you can probably tell where I'm going here, and <laughs> where Paul is going here, more importantly, with just taking this right out of its context and slapping it on to the beginning of the Deuteronomy 30 passage we're about to get to. Um, this whole context is about like not trusting in our own righteousness, right? And, and not thinking that the blessings of the Lord come about because of our own actions and our own deeds. And so, and in this case, of course, it was the Israelites entering the promised land. Uh, you know, this blessing, God says, has nothing to do with your own righteousness. It's just because, and he gives two reasons <laughs> why he's doing this for them. Um, and it, it's it's because of his own righteousness, of course, but specifically displayed in two different ways. One would be his desire to judge the wicked people who were already in the land and drive them out and punish them for their their evil, right? And second of all is he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and he wants to remain faithful to that promise, uh, even though Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob's offspring were a bunch of dunderheads. <laughs> so, <laughs> like, so I love this passage. I love that God's just like I don't know. It makes me feel like um. Like a dad who's just like overworked or whatever for Christmas. <laughs> and he's like, like, I'm not giving you this gift because you're some exceptional person, right? Like, I mean, I love you. You're my son. But like, you're kind of disobedient a lot and you need to be, you know, disciplined a lot. And, you know, like, I love you. It's not that it's not anything about it. Like, you know, not, <laughs> I'm not trying to shame you or anything, dude. But like, you know, 
you don't really deserve the PlayStation Five. You know, I just wanted you to have it. And maybe like the maybe the PlayStation Four was like getting old and dusty, and we needed to we needed to like kick it out of there. <laughs> I just love it. I love God's attitude. You know, like. It, <laughs> um. Anyways, it's a fun passage, but obviously the 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 significance to what we're talking about in Romans 10 should be pretty obvious. Um, and that's absolutely why Paul slaps that, that, that phrase here. Um, I mean, it ends up being like a Frankenstein of old Testament passages, but like, uh, I, I think it's really cool that he, he throws this context in there before he goes on to Deuteronomy 30, um, to remind us about the, you know, to, to put us on the right track already. Like, do not say in your heart that you can attain righteousness that will bring the Lord's blessings. God already, said that wasn't going to happen in Deuteronomy 9. So, all right, that being said, let's let's go to Deuteronomy 30. And, and this is the part of the passage that I find pretty tough to grasp. So, so uh, let's uh, read verses 11 through 14. You want to give us those, John? For this commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, neither is it far off. It is not in heaven that you should say, who will ascend to heaven for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? Neither is it beyond the sea that you should say, Who will go over the sea for us and bring it to us that we may hear it and do it? But the word is very near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. So, I I mean, when I read this passage, it seems like it's pretty clear to me. Uh, You know, there's a lot of complicated contexts to Deuteronomy, which we don't have the time to get into today. Um, Again, that would require like a whole extra episode. But I think like, to me, the general thrust of the passage is pretty clear. Um, like, you know, the commandments are not unreachable. Uh, they're not in heaven. They're not beyond the sea. They're not in a place that humans can't access it. Instead, Moses says, the word is in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. God's laws were transcribed from Moses, who spoke directly to God. Like, the Israelites had access to the truth of God, um, and they were immediately accessible to them. Um, so, so the original context doesn't seem to too difficult. I think what, what makes it tough is when we try to see how Paul is using it, which is a bit a bit of a conundrum. And also when we bring this, you know, passage into the context of the rest of the Bible, like, what do you mean that you can do it? Uh, I thought the whole point is that we couldn't do it. Like, like that's the whole meta theme of Romans and Galatians and, and multiple, you know, large segments of the New Testament. So what do you mean that we can do it, Moses? Uh, and I think, I think this will be I think Paul's explanation of the passage will illuminate this to us. So let's take a look. We have these two separated quotations, the who will ascend to heaven, who will descend into the abyss. And both of them are accompanied with these explanatory clauses, which say that is to bring Christ down or to bring Christ up from the dead. So first, let's take this who will ascend to heaven. Obviously, ascending into heaven is not possible for us. <laughs> and I think the the idea here is that achieving righteousness based on the law is impossible. You can't reach it. You can't get there. You can't ascend into heaven. Uh, that's not possible for us. And that is, if we were to, that would be to bring Christ down. And this puzzled me for a bit, but thankfully, um, my good buddy, Tommy Schreiner, <laughs> uh, I'd be more respectful, Dr. Thomas Schreiner, <laughs> with his fabulous commentary on Romans, uh, just pointed out that... Theologian like, extraordinaire. Right, yep. 
he he pointed out, and I just I didn't think of this myself, but it seems like this is most naturally like a reference to the incarnation. And now that that was said, I'm like, oh, duh, that makes sense to bring Christ down, right? He lives in heaven, uh, that's his home, right? But but he's becoming incarnated in the flesh, and he's coming down from heaven. And so I think Paul's idea here is we are not able to ascend into heaven ourselves, but Jesus has to descend from heaven. So like not only does Christ achieve what we can't achieve by, you know, being in, he's in heaven already. <laughs> not only does he, not only can he ascend into heaven, but he like, just, that's where he chills. That's his place, dude. Like, <laughs> so I think that's the idea is that Christ has actually surpassed what we are supposed to do, but find impossible to do. Um, because Christ has to descend uh, instead of us ascending. So that's this first who will ascend to heaven that we're not supposed to say in our heart, right? Because we can't attain to it ourselves. But what's this other thing we can't attain to ourselves and that we're not supposed to say in our heart? Who will descend into the abyss? Now, if you're paying attention when John was reading the passage, you'll probably remember that Moses did not use the word abyss. He used the word sea. Uh, and I think this is a little bit of a creative spin that Paul is putting on the Moses passage. Uh, that Paul is changing sea to abyss. The concepts are related in Jewish thought. Uh, so this is not like completely out there. Um, <laughs> it's a little bit of a play on words almost. Um, and, and the abyss, of course, is the place where the dead go. It's the netherworld, you know. Uh, it's where Hades dwells in Hercules, the, the movie. <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> probably not a theologically accurate movie, but you get the point, right? It's the, the abode of the dead. And... Um, Christ, of course, <laughs> did actually descend into the abyss. That's the funny part about it, right? Uh, we can't descend into the abyss except if we die. And when we die, we just die. Unlike Jesus, we don't have the power to be resurrected. Right. We, we cannot raise ourselves, let alone raise Christ. Right. Yes. So this, uh, it's not a misquotation of the text, but I think Paul is recognizing that like, hey, if the depths of the sea are something that could keep us from attaining something, if, if God's word were to be found over the sea um, where we couldn't reach it, well, then certainly how much more would God's word and our ability to do it be unreachable if it were at the bottom of the abyss where you would literally have to die to get there? Um, so I, I think Paul is actually right in line with the spirit of the Moses text here. He's saying Jesus Christ has gone to an even deeper depths than what Moses said. And just to add a little bit more flavor here of this idea of the connection between the sea and like the, you know, the bottom of the sea and the place where the, uh, you know, the dead go. Uh, this is actually utilized by the, the the gospel authors as well, or, you know, specifically by Jesus. Uh, I'm thinking of there's a passage, I believe it's in Matthew chapter 12, where, uh, you know, the Pharisees come to him and, and demand a, a sign uh, asking him to, you know, demonstrate his authority to do, you know, all of the all of the things that he has been doing. Uh, you know, and he says to them, like, you know, ah, no sign will be given you except the sign of Jonah. And then, you know, he goes on to explain that, you know, just as Jonah was in the the belly of the fish for three days, so the Son of Man will be in. Uh, what, what's the exact phrasing, Jeremy, again? Yeah, you, you got it right so far. The, so the Son of Man will be three days in the heart of the earth. That's the NIV. Right. Um, yeah, because that's what I have it memorized in. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, in the heart of the earth. And, and, and you know, Jesus's point there is that, you know, the sign of Jonah is, you know, the, the sign of his own death, that he will be, you know, in the grave for three days. And so, you know, Jesus is making this exact same connection between the, you know, the, the, the heart of the sea and the abyss, the place where the dead go. Uh, and so this is, you know, not 
certainly would not be a foreign concept to any Jewish audience or, you know, many of the ancient cultures either. Yeah, like in ancient Greek mythology, you have the River Styx, <laughs> which is like, you know, flowing through Hades, like the place of the dead. They, there's definitely this connection. And that'd be cool to explore more like why why that is the case. But uh, but I think you're right. I think this connection would have been easily understood. I don't think anybody would have been like, why did he change sea to abyss? Um, like it works thematically. With, yeah, they would have been with Deuteronomy. They would have been like, oh, I see what you did there, Paul. Great. Or, you know, <laughs> might not even necessarily acknowledge it. It just would have been subconscious. They just would have gotten it. Yep, I think so. So I think the point here, the word and thus our ability to achieve righteousness by that word is not quote unquote down there or quote unquote up there. Like Christ has already been down there and up there on our behalf. And so he's, he's, you know, if we think of, you know, attaining righteousness as some sort of like uh, plot device, like the MacGuffin, right? Um, like the plans to the Death Star, right? Uh, it's, you know, it's all the way at a completely unreachable location. We're not able to do it, but Jesus Christ has done it on our behalf. He's, he's going to, you know, blow up the Death Star because he found the plans that we weren't able to, to get to. <laughs> um, you know, I just, I find it's easier to think of this, like this, what Paul's doing here. If we think of like an object that has to be grabbed, you know, at a location, I, I know that's not what he means, but it's helpful for me to grasp it if I think about it that way. Um, so Jesus went and got the, got the thing, you know, he, uh, he caught the snitch, uh, <laughs> and, um, is that what it's called? The thing in, in, uh, in, uh, why can't I think of it? Uh, it's Quidditch, Quidditch. Yeah. <laughs> okay man man I, I, i'm telling you this uh caffeine thing um so <laughs> so yeah the point is jesus went and he got it or perhaps maybe to mix metaphors a little bit here you have like the one ring in you know the lord of the rings you know it's not it's not far off you know frodo's just got it right here but you know he's got to take it all the way to mount doom to you know cast it into the fire and you know that's not something that i appreciate the lord of the rings reference john but are you saying jesus is going to destroy righteousness in a fire <laughs> Okay, maybe that's not the best analogy. <laughs> At any rate, <laughs> well, yeah, and it's okay. So, so, but you raise a good point because we now we need to move on to this this final quotation from the Deuteronomy passage when it says, "The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart," and because the, the you know righteousness based on faith has already been achieved for us and it's already been gotten by Jesus, who is the only one who could get it, therefore. The word is near us. It's not far away from us. And Paul identifies this word specifically. He says, that is the word of faith that we proclaim. So the word that is being used in Paul's use here is not the word of perfect obedience to the commandments of Moses, but rather the word is the gospel, the faith that Paul proclaims, which commands us to believe in Christ. So in other words, the word that is near us, which we can do, Paul identifies as confessing and believing in the gospel, not in perfect obedience. Okay, so was it worth going through the Deuteronomy passage now? Because that's awesome. <laughs> that is really <laughs> sick. Like, I love it. Um, <laughs> that's worth it, right? Uh, to, to understand what this word is that, that Christ came to achieve. This commandment that I command you today is not too hard for you, Moses said. And Paul doesn't directly comment on this verse, but I would suppose he doesn't think Moses was being like facetious, like Moses, like, you know, kind of sly with his like eyebrows raised, like, <laughs> whatever, you're going to fail. Mm -hmm. You know, <laughs> it's not too hard for you. It's not too hard for you, but you guys are awful. So, you know, you'll probably find some way to mess it up. Um, 
I mean, Mo- I mean that is kind of true. They did, but like, but like Moses wasn't being facetious. Like he he wasn't saying this command is is not too hard for you to perfectly obey. Moses is saying like it's not too hard for you to faithfully rely and depend and obey God, depend on and obey God, and grow in your faith and repent and have ongoing growing like obedience to the law. And he says. This is not too hard for God's people. It's near and it's accessible to you. And it was near and accessible to the Jews. Even though all of this stuff about the law not being able to bring us righteousness is is true. And Paul's been going on on it for, you know, (laughs) most of the book of Romans to this point. That's still true. But his point is not that like the righteousness that his point is not that righteousness used to be based on the law and now it's based on faith. His point is that it's always been. It's always been based on faith. And Moses even recognizes that. And so, thus, to tie it back into the Leviticus passage, the person who does the commandments shall live by them, from Leviticus 18.5, was never intended as the means of attaining righteousness in and of itself. Paul concludes, because Deuteronomy 30, along with a little bit of tossing in Deuteronomy 9 in there, teaches that we cannot attain righteousness based on our own works. Dude, this is so good. (laughs) Dude, I told you this passage was cool, right? (laughs) Yeah, so with that, Jeremy, we've kind of been talking here a little bit and sort of dancing around this idea of how we make sense of the uh, what's called the Old Covenant, that is like ancient Israel's relationship with God as like, you know, the nation of Israel with the the new covenant that is this new relationship that we have in the new testament where it's both jews and greeks or jews and gentiles that have been united with christ and and on that basis have relationship with god so kind of these this old covenant new covenant uh, and and how to stitch those two things together uh, and we kind of been dancing around it a little bit because you know deuteronomy 30 really is kind of laying out uh, a lot of the um at least in context it's talking a lot about the uh, uh, kind of what the ground rules are for that old covenant relationship that Israel had with God. And now Paul, you know, he's kind of been spending basically all of the last nine to 10 chapters of Romans really talking about this new, uh, uh, this new righteousness, this new uh, covenant that we have with God as uh, like believers in Jesus. And so I I think this is actually a great opportunity for us to maybe pause from uh, going through just like the exegesis of Romans 10 and to to loop maybe loop in some theologies from some other places in scripture to really help us understand this relationship between the old covenant that was kind of talked about in Deuteronomy 30 and uh, kind of applying it in this new covenant uh, uh, situation here. So kind of first John talks about this a little bit. We can read a couple verses here and, and maybe talk about it. So um, let's start here with like first John, um, chapter three, verse 23, it says, and this is his commandment that we believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ and love one another just as he commanded us earlier in first John as well in chapter two, verses seven and eight, we have this other passage that says, beloved, I'm writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. 
At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So it's interesting here that that the book of 1 John identifies this commandment, which is to believe in the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another. He identifies this as not a new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. In other words, this has always been the commandment for God's people. Um, Jesus, of course, identifies loving God and loving your neighbor as the the first and second greatest commandments. Um, And then John kind of contradicts himself right away and says, at the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you. So he's kind of like trying to, to, you know, make this subtle point of like, okay, this is really what it's been about the whole time. But, you know, now that Jesus has come, the, you know, the eschatological realities, we might say, of, of ushering in the new age where the spirit is poured out on us and, and uh, Gentiles have come in to, to the people of God in greater numbers than ever before, you know, the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So like the commandment is much more intensified and much more powerful now than it ever was before. But it's not a new commandment entirely. Uh, the commandment has always been to believe and love one another. Uh, and, and that's a, we could also, if we wanted to do a whole study of the book of First John, we could, you know, trace all the points at which this is like his thesis statement, right? That the commandment is to believe and love one another. Certainly. And, you know, and, and one of the things that he really emphasizes is it's this, this commandment, like from the beginning, uh, which you see there, the commandment that you had from the beginning. And, and it's actually really interesting because then later in the, in the book, John actually gives us a reference, like from the beginning, he, he actually talks about the story of Cain and Abel and how like Cain's murdering of Abel is like the exact antithesis of the kind of love that we should have for our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and kind of like his point there is like, come on, guys, like from the beginning, like Cain and Abel from the beginning, the, the command has been to love your brothers. And I mean, in that case, it's like literally like your your brother, but you know, he's making it more generally kind of the like the brotherhood of believers. Absolutely. So to believe has always been the commandment, according to John. And as we've just, you know, noticed, Paul is kind of going along those lines as well. But uh, let's actually go back to Romans and head a few verses earlier into the end of Romans chapter nine, where we have this fascinating passage that kind of helps us, you know, be sure we're on the right track here with understanding Romans 10. All right, so let's read here in Romans chapter 9, verses 30 through 32. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel, who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness, did not succeed in reaching that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. Oh, man. Okay. (laughs) So... Here's, here's what we got going on here. Paul's Jewish detractors had gotten things exactly backwards, and they assumed that their obedience to God was the grounding of their righteousness and not the fruit of it. But because of their arrogance, Paul argues that God has chosen instead to pour out his blessings on the Gentiles. And notice this, the outpouring of God's blessing on the Gentiles is not because of any righteousness of the Gentiles, because Paul just said, Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it. But rather, it's because of the wickedness of God's own people in rejecting their Messiah. So this brings us right back to Deuteronomy 9, the do not say in your heart passage, 
where God gave his people the promised land, not because of their righteousness, but because of the wickedness of the people who were living there. And now we can see like, Paul is brilliant. <laughs> like he's, he is taking all these passages and he really understands what's going on in Deuteronomy and how, how that has Christological significance in his day after the coming of Jesus. Um, and sometimes you read commentators who, who think like Paul plays fast and loose with the old Testament and he just kind of like reinterprets it however he wants, you know, to, to shoehorn Jesus into it. But nothing could be further from the truth. Paul gets exactly what these passages are about. That's why he's meshing them together in the way he is. Like <laughs> he gets exactly what's going on here just because the, or just in the same way that the, the Jews got their promised land because of the wickedness of the Gentiles, not because of their righteousness, the Gentiles now are achieving righteousness through Jesus Christ not based on their righteousness, but on the righteousness of Jesus and the wickedness of the Jews in rejecting that righteousness. Yeah, and 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 actually, and by using this, uh, Paul is actually kind of joining in with a long tradition of the prophets of absolutely slamming Israel for their wickedness in turning away from God. Because notice the comparison that he's making right here. Paul is like putting the Gentiles in the place of the Israelites in the Old Testament of being given like this, the the the, the promised land is, is sort of the comparison that's being made here. Like they're the ones who are inheriting it, not because of what they did. And who are the people who are in the place of like the wicked Canaanite tribes that are being spewed out of the land, you know, in the con like over the course of the conquest, but the Jews who rejected their Messiah. And so it, it's this, um, it, I, I, I think this is actually a really masterful uh, move that Paul is is making right here of, you know, on the one hand, like silencing the like objections from the Jews to say like, oh, no, we're like, we're God's people, you know, we're the ones who, you know, like have inherited the law and stuff. And, you know, and, and in one sense, that's true. But in the other sense, Paul is putting them like in the place of the wicked nations that have been like continually turning away from God and, you know, it, like, and as he talks about in other places have essentially been like disinherited. Yeah. And that is something that the Old Testament prophets do a lot. I think it might be Amos off the top of my head, who is he the one who does like the, he, he condemns all like the nations of the Gentiles. And then all of a sudden he like pivots to the Jews and then like the, the listening Jew would be like, oh, yeah, forget, you know, the Edomites, they suck, you know, and then all of a sudden, like, Amos is like, well, what about you? <laughs> <laughs> I, I think I think it's Amos. Um, you know, don't quote me on that off the top of my head. Uh, but but yeah, no, this is definitely the strategy that Paul is undertaking. And eventually in Romans 11, which sort of functions as the end of this section, where we mentioned earlier, Paul is making a, an apology, an argument for why his gospel is true, even though the Jews reject it. His sort of his final statement in at the end of chapter eleven is just as you Gentiles were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience. So they too, the Jews, have now been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you Gentiles, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that He may have mercy on all. And all means all, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> all means Gentiles yes, and yes, Jews. Yes, Jews and context. Gentiles together. <laughs> and then Paul bursts forth into that famous, oh, um, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. So that's Paul's big like moment of like, 
like he's done making the argument he's done with with you know his his point and he just bursts forth into worship of god because who else but god would have this manner of doing things right to <laughs> to bring one down and raise one up and with the eventual goal of raising all up to to salvation in christ um and that's what paul is about here and and that's where paul is heading eventually um after the passage we're looking at today but i think although we've mentioned it a few times just to make it very clear. I, th I think the point here is that J Paul, as well as John and other New Testament writers, do not believe that justification used to be by works and now it's by faith. They, they insist that it's always been by faith. Um, and, and of course, that's been clear earlier in Romans in chapter four, when he's talking about how Abraham was justified, uh, you know, when he believed God and it, that it was then counted to him as righteousness. But but here Paul is really taking the Mosaic law to task and showing how even in the law of Moses, perfect obedience was not what Deuteronomy prescribed in order to be saved and in order to keep one's covenant status with God. Perfect obedience was always impossible, was always understood to be impossible, but rather faithful obedience and walking with God brings blessing. That's the point of the Deuteronomic law. And the reason why God rejected his people is not because they were imperfect, but because they stopped walking with him. They stopped believing in him. But yeah, so, so and of course, the, the reason we know more than anything that the Jews had in fact rejected their God is that when the Messiah came, most of them did not see it at first, um, or at all, some of them. Now, many did. You know, it's not to justify any form of, of anti-Semitism uh, whatsoever, uh, but... Uh, and, and, you know, Paul himself is a Jew. <laughs> so anyone who would take this as a... As a so was Jesus. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. Right? So uh, I think sometimes if we're, we're, you know, just going on about how the Jews rejected God and all that, uh, people might get the wrong idea um, about what we mean. Uh, so, but but no, like the, there's nothing anti-Semitic about this. It's just uh, God is, is eventually restoring all people to him. And this was his grand plan about how to do it. Certainly. And quite the opposite of you know, some kind of anti-Semitic claim that would say that the, you know, the Jews are, you know, have forever turned away from God or that, you know, God has forsaken his people or, you know, in anything like that. Uh, but quite the opposite, you know, like we said, Paul is going to make the point that part of the purpose of this is so that the Jews can also be grafted back in as well. But this time in like the context of having true faith in Christ. All right. So now that we've you know, just destroyed verses five through eight and looked at Deuteronomy for days, right? Let's finally hit our verse nine. And now I think we have the, now I think we have the context to understand it. Uh, because, so the word is near you, in your, in your mouth and in your heart, that is the word of faith that we proclaim, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved, right? So what is, We've just seen this in your mouth and in your heart part of Deuteronomy, and Paul directly takes that and puts the Christological spin on it. So if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the word that's near you in your mouth and in your heart, the confession and the belief. And that's what this verse means <laughs> in context. And you need, to go, you need to go to all those Deuteronomy and Leviticus passages to get that, that that's what he's talking about about your mouth and your heart. That's the word. And that's obeying the law of Moses. Boom. Boom shakalaka. Well, what about verse 10? <laughs> verse 10 reverses the order. Uh, 
With the heart, one believes and is justified, and with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. And this is something you see common in, in scripture. They'll, you know, sometimes somebody will restate the same thing, but like reverse the order. Um, so this verse doesn't really mean anything different, although it does bring that word justified into it just to make it clear what's happening. But I think Paul probably restates it in this way to make it clear that like the belief comes first, like the confession flows from the heart, right? Um, and that, that kind of goes along with the, you know, the theme in scripture of like God will write his laws on our hearts, right? And when he does that, then we confess. So perhaps Paul restates it just to, to make the order clear. But then in the first, then in the first verse, he, he uses the order from the passage in Deuteronomy of heart or of mouth first and then heart. Certainly. And I, and I also think it does reinforce Paul's earlier point that he has gone to great pains uh, to make of about Abraham believing and it being credited to him, credited to him as righteousness, that his like faith is what leads to his justification. Um, and that like, and that's, what's being emphasized here that like with the heart, one believes that's, that's the faith piece in that that is like, you know, it's, you believe and are justified. Yes. And then you confess and you're saved. <laughs> so what about these last three verses, verses 11 through 13, which are make up, you know, kind of the end of this passage before Paul goes on to something else. Um, you have these like quotations from the old Testament, again, some more quotations and these sort of just serve to reinforce the point that's already being made. So we have this Isaiah quotation in verse 11. Uh, it says, everyone who believes uh, will not be put to shame. And I think this is not about like a feeling of shame. I think he's talking about the final judgment will not be you know put to shame, will not be cast out, right? Everyone who believes in him. And there's an all that means all. <laughs> all who believe, like all who believe, I guess it's qualified by the, the believing clause. Um, but... But without exception, Jew and Gentile, everyone who believes will be will not be put to shame. And then take a look at uh, verse 12. So we have this, there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. And interestingly, we talked about this on our first episode of the Romans Road when we looked at 323, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, uh, which the verse before says there is no distinction, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. But interestingly, here, instead of being used to say there's no distinction, everyone is equally sinful, Paul echoes this phrase for the second and final time in the book of Romans by arguing that there's no distinction because the same Lord is Lord of all, and everybody who is saved is saved by believing in the same Lord. So this is a wonderful reversal of, of the condition that we found ourselves in 323. Now everybody is saved because there's no distinction, as long as you believe in Christ. That's the only distinction that exists. And then lastly, we get this verse 13, which quotes Joel chapter 3, verse 5. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So, okay, we just talked about calling on the name of the Lord. There's no distinction. The same Lord is Lord of all, and he bestows his riches on all who call on him. So we call on him, we'll be saved, right? That's cool enough. But actually, <laughs> once again, if we look at the original context of the Joel passage, this is the same passage that talks about the pouring out of the Spirit which later in Acts chapter 2 at Pentecost actually does happen. And the, the apostles say this is the outpouring of the Spirit that Joel was talking about. So what happens in this passage? Well, obviously, the, we've got the entrance of Gentiles into the church as part of this passage, right? I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. And the idea of that, which was fulfilled at Pentecost, according to the apostles, is that the, the coming of the Spirit which was evidenced at that point in speaking in tongues, um, 
not any longer, but that's a contra con that's a contrary <laughs> position that we will not go down a rabbit trail on right now. Yes, we will um, have to loop back to that in a future episode. <laughs> but so that at that time it was evidenced by the speaking of tongues, and both Jews and Gentiles would speak in tongues throughout the the gospel or throughout the book of Acts when Gentiles came to believe in Christ, they would also speak in tongues. And so this Joel quotation isn't just there because of calling on the name of the Lord and being saved. It's, it's also there to further reinforce Paul's point that the entrance of Gentiles into the church via the gospel is actually an argument in favor of the truth of the gospel, not an argument against it. So the fact that the Jews rejected the gospel, but the Gentiles embraced it, Paul says, is to some extent prophesied by Joel. And therefore, this is a part of the fulfillment of God's covenantal promises. And you also have these passages in the law, in Deuteronomy in particular, promising curses for disobedience. So Paul is just showing that everything that's happening is exactly the way God has always operated. We disobeyed, we rejected the Messiah, so we're, we are not the ones who are coming into the kingdom right now. Uh, you know, in the future, perhaps, right? <laughs> um, actually, in the future, Paul is certain, um, not perhaps. Uh, we will we will come in and be grafted into the tree. But right now, we're being disobedient, so God is going to the Gentiles, and he's pouring out his spirit on them, and they are embracing the gospel because they are embracing the righteousness of Christ and not the righteousness based on the law. So, dude, Paul knows his Old Testament. That's That's our conclusion. That's our conclusion today. These passages are all meant to add to this tapestry of, a, of an understanding of why. Why are the Jews rejecting God? Why are the Gentiles coming in? And why is God operating the way he does? And rather than being an argument against the gospel, it's an argument in favor of it. Yeah. So with all of those like really awesome like Old Testament passages that that Paul's bringing to us, and yeah, Jeremy, I agree. It's just it's it's pretty amazing to see how Paul just like stitches all of these like passages that are kind of like in different places, but tells the like coherent story that you know God is telling in history. That it's you know it's been like First John says from the beginning. This is the way that it has you know always been. Um, and it's just really cool to see Paul like stitching all of those pieces together. But, you know, before we kind of wrap this episode up, I think we should circle back to uh, something that we alluded to at the beginning of the the podcast and, uh, you know, just kind of uh, zero in a little bit on the actual verse that we've been talking about before. We've kind of spent most of the episode talking about the immediate context and how like super cool the context is. Uh, but let's just kind of end this episode by zeroing in on the verse itself and actually teasing out these two pieces that Paul talks about. You know, so we have in the first one, you know, confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believing in your heart that God raised him from the dead. So there's kind of these two pieces to it. Now, one thing that you said earlier was it's it's important that Paul doesn't say if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Savior, or, you know, if you confess with your mouth, like, Jesus is King, or, you, you know, one of these others. It, it, it's interesting that Paul uses the specific title Lord in this case. Now, kind of part of the backdrop for this title, which uh, I think we kind of need to bring to bear here, is that in kind of, you know, the first century, you have the Roman Empire, which has basically conquered all of the known world at that point. And you have Caesar, who's, you know, the big kahuna over the Roman Empire. And there was a, uh, a declaration that one would make 
to indicate that they acknowledged that Caesar was the ruler over the whole world. And that is, you would say, Caesar is Lord. And it's uh, uh, Kaiser Kyrios. Did I pronounce that right? Uh, yeah, more or less. <laughs> In my bad pronunciation, you would say Kaiser Kyrios. Um, you can tell that I haven't taken Greek here, folks. Um, but yeah, so Kaiser Kyrios would be the, the, the way that you would indicate, like, you know, Caesar, he's he's king, he's lord. Uh, and there's also a, like a deity component to as well, that he's like, you know, this god emperor figure of the of the Roman Empire. And so it is not coincidence that Paul is is using this phrase of Jesus is Lord. Or this would be Jesus Kyrios in Greek. How did I do on that one, Jeremy? Perfect. Okay, perfect. Um, and so it is, in fact, actually, this phrase is a direct denial of Caesar as the supreme ruler over the world. That it's not confess with your mouth Kaiser Kyrios. It's confess with your mouth Jesus Kyrios. It's not Caesar who is Lord, it is Jesus who is Lord. And so while I think in the present day we have like pretty well spiritualized this idea of like Jesus as Lord, I think it's really important to remember that the way that Paul's audience would have heard this is more than just kind of a like spiritual reality of like, ah, yeah, Jesus is like king of the world, but like, no, no, no. There, there are people out there who claim to be king of the world, and they are not king. It is Jesus who is king. He is supreme over all things. That includes my life. That includes this nation that we're part of, this empire. It's not Caesar who's in charge of this empire. Ultimately, Jesus is in charge of this empire. Well, yeah, and even in, in the book of Revelation, you get the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdoms of our God and of his Christ, and they shall reign forever and ever. Or actually, I think it's, and he shall reign forever and ever, talking about Christ. Um, so like, yeah, this is a politically subversive statement, and we should not forget that. Uh, like you said, we should not spiritualize this. Confessing Jesus as Lord, especially because Paul is insistent that this is something you do with your mouth, it is not something you privately believe in your heart, right? This this idea of confessing Jesus as Lord might just get you killed. In fact, it got many Christians killed. Yes, it, it in fact did and still does in one way or another. And so, yeah, it's funny when people say, like, I get what people mean when they say this, but when people say like, oh, you know, Christianity doesn't like, it's not political. Like we shouldn't have like a political view. And I, I get what they mean. They're trying to say like, we shouldn't be partisan. Um, you know, like our kingdom is not this kingdom. It's it's in heaven, right? I, all of that is true. It's like Jesus isn't a Republican. <laughs> Yeah, right. Yes. Which, which, which I a hundred percent affirm, but like, <laughs> um, this is a political statement. Jesus is Lord. It has to be because we're confessing that he owns the world and that he is in fact the rightful ruler of it and that everyone else is a pretender to the throne. And that will get you killed by just about any tyrannical government that has ever existed, including Rome, including communist regimes of the 20th century, including Nazi Germany. Like, you know, it's... <laughs> This is there's a, a history to this phrase and to the general desire to submit to Christ that that entails you're submitting unto death if need be. And so far from the way that this verse is often interpreted as this like, oh, if you if you like say the sinner's prayer, then you get your ticket punched to heaven. Like Paul is saying kind of exactly the opposite. It like confessing that Jesus is Lord is not some like cheap, easy, you know, throwaway thing that you do one time. 
This is a like buying into Jesus's kingdom over against all of the kingdoms of the world, rejecting any leader as supreme to Jesus himself. Like in like you're saying, this is something that people have been killed over this claim. So far from being something easy, this is in fact like a very high price to pay. Yep, I think we we've just been saying again and again and and it bears repeating that like this is not a sinner's prayer type thing. And I think even though I think this is a great verse to have in the Romans road, I, I do think it sometimes gets preached that way. Um, that like, just confess with your mouth and believe, right? Just say the words, repeat this prayer, and then you're good. Well, um, what about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 7, verses 21 through 23? When you have the, you know, uh, the people who will say to the Lord on the day of judgment, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and in your name perform many miracles? And then Jesus says to them, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. And they call him Lord. They say, Lord, did we not do this? So those people confessed Jesus as Lord, didn't they? And yet the Lord cast them out of his kingdom. He called them evildoers. And they did not have the righteousness that comes by faith. So, Clearly, this does not mean that just saying the words Jesus is Lord constitutes a confession with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and a belief in your heart that God raised him from the dead. Kind of what we've been saying earlier when we were talking about 1 John, which says the commandment is to believe and to love one another. And going along with our episode on James a while back, true faith is vindicated and proven by good works. And this is very much in view when Paul commands us to confess the lordship of Christ, not just the fact that he saves us, not just a get out of hell free card, but rather belief and submission. And again, not perfectly. (laughs) In fact, quite imperfectly. Uh, But the point being that this is not just uh, a mantra that we can throw on something to get blessed by God. God. God will never allow us to use him that way. That's not how he operates. Certainly. And in fact, Paul goes to great lengths in the remainder of the book after the end of chapter 11 to talk about exactly what are the implications for your life and the way that you should live, given the fact that you confess Christ and that you believe in him. Amen. And I think we'll get some some time to look at that in our final Romans Road episode, which will be coming out next. Oh, yeah, dude, it's going to be great. Well, this was a big one. Um, I'm really su- super excited that we got to look at this verse because digging into all those Deuteronomy passages really and in, in just enriched my understanding of Paul's view of the gospel. You know, sometimes like with Matthew 7, 1, the do not judge verse, like we kind of already know what we're talking about before we get into it. Uh, but this time was not one of those times. And I'm super happy we uh, we tackled this verse. Yeah, it's a good opportunity to ourselves study and, and learn more deeply the truths of scripture. Amen to that. Well, let's, uh, I think I hear some other meat possibly sizzling. It's time for the other meat. Well, for our applications this week, uh, I think the first one that we uh, are going to do is just steal the first half of uh, the, the, the verse that Paul has given to us here. And that is that we should be submitting to the Lordship of Christ. We should also confess that Jesus is Lord. And not just in the things that we say, but that to but that we should be truly putting our lives under Christ's rule as our king. You know, this 
has many implications for the way that we live our lives. And, you know, the New Testament goes to great lengths talking about this. But I think we should just emphasize that 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 fundamentally is the uh, uh, the, the calling that we have as Christians is to be under the lordship of Jesus, to hail him as our king. Amen. And uh, point number two here, since righteousness is not based on the law, we should never write anyone off from salvation. You know, we shouldn't be like Jonah saying, hey, those Ninevites, right? They they will never repent, right? They'll never believe. Well, uh, the Gentiles also were not pursuing righteousness, and yet they attained it. Um so, you know, tax collectors and prostitutes ate with Jesus. And uh, point number three here is, I think as an application, we should be taking comfort that uh, um, what is required of us is not something that is impossible. Now, specifically what we mean is this idea of ascending into heaven to bring Christ down or descending into the abyss to raise Christ up or even to please God with our good works. Now, like these are things which we cannot do ourselves, but that Christ has done for us and that we now have this new mechanism of gaining access to that righteousness, that is to believe in Jesus. It's not perfection that God requires for us, for, from us, this perfect adherence to the law. In fact, it was never what God truly required of us was this perfect adherence to the law, but it has always been to have faith. And so we should take comfort in this, that it is not this impossible thing that we have to do to create in ourselves our own righteousness to satisfy God's perfect law. But what is required of us is to have faith in Christ, to confess and to believe. All right, number four. Well, since Jesus is Lord, we should avoid taking his name in vain and using the name of Jesus flippantly. I think this is some practical uh, implications of the Lordship of Christ um, to treat his name with honor. And uh, and I think, you know, we've talked about this a little bit on our podcast before, but I think it's it's good reminder. Um, I need reminding of it to, to, you know, let my speech always speak positively of Jesus and uh, and not uh, slander his name with, with cursing or whatever. Yeah, and connected with that, point number five is, you know, another way that we can avoid taking the Lord's name in vain is to avoid half-heartedness. You know, if we truly confess that Jesus is Lord, then we should be serious and heartfelt in what we confess and what we believe. We should cultivate a heartfelt devotion toward our Lord. This is in our prayers, in our reading of the word, in our following of him, in the way that we love our neighbors. We should be pouring our whole selves into it. And I like that you mention reading his word in prayer, John. So it's, it's your heart and your mouth. Just like the verse says, this is this is the way for Christians. This is belief and confession, not perfect obedience, but uh, but faithful daily walking with God. That's what the law requires of us. That's the word of faith that Paul proclaims. And if we do that, we will certainly be saved. It's time for milk, not solid food. Well, Jeremy, to quote the Apostle Peter, there are some things that Paul says which are hard to understand. You know, that includes uh, many of the uh, uh, references that Paul makes to the Old Testament that us Gentiles uh, need to spend a long time digging into the, the history of in uh, the text of to make sense of. But there are plenty of things that Paul and the other New Testament authors say that are, in fact, quite easy to understand. 
So let's close this episode by sitting in the simple wisdom of John 3.16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. Well, in the words of the immortal philosopher Porky Pig, that's all, folks. We thank you for joining us. If anything you heard today has sent you into a blind theological rage, feel free to lambast us on social media. Alternatively, if you liked what you heard, have Bible verses you want us to break down, or questions you think we can answer, you can send them to the John 315 podcast at gmail.com. That's the John315podcast at gmail.com. Thank you for listening.